0: Well, that could just about do, couldn't it? We could probably sing that song on repeat for the next half an hour and um, be more convinced than when we walked in that Jesus is in fact the King of Kings and the unfathomable mystery that the God of all creation would come and be found as a baby in the dirt to find you and I and to show us another way to bring about a new creation in our world and bring about a new creation in our hearts is absolutely dumbfounding to me. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he of all creation would look at me and would look at you and say, I pick you, I choose you. And the radical lengths that he has gone to, to call us his own. He is the King of kings and we worship him today. Well, we started off um, this year back in February, well, we started the year in January, as you typically do, but um, as far as our um, kind of theme for the year and our vision for this year and what we feel God was calling, to us, calling us to kind of at a, at a, at a background level, the, the hum, if you like, or, or what was just going to be um, ticking along in the background, our theme of come what may, we will run. And um, if you weren't with us from the start, and or perhaps um, you've got a forgettery as good as mine, um, it was from the story of um, when Absalom, King David's son, was killed in battle, and there was a young man named Ahimaz. And Ahimaz, um, it was his job to run the news to the king. And so when Absalom was killed, Ahimaz, being his job, and he loved the king so much, he went to Joab, the commander of the army, and said, Can I please run the news to the king of Absalom's death? And Joab said to him, No, 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 not today, um, Ahimaz, today it's not your job. I just want you to take a seat and, um, and, and just wait your turn. And in the meantime, Joab went and appointed an Ethiopian man to run the news. And off he went. Uh, the Ethiopian runner, and as they do, they run at a fair clip. Off he went, and he was running to the king to give him the news. Meanwhile, Ahimaz uh, was very unsettled and probably quite unhappy with what had just gone down. This other gentleman had his job, and he was off and away. And Ahimaz, I think probably because, um, his frustration was probably because he knew this was his appointment, and such was his love for the king that he went back to joab and said please please let me run and joab said to him well why why do you want to run you know you're not going to get any reward this guy's going to beat you in fact he's three quarters of the way there you know there's nothing in it for you and Ahimaaz, full of conviction and full of clarity and full of love for the king said to joab come what may i will run And off he went. And in fact, the story goes that he outran the Ethiopian. Such was his love and his dedication and his passion and his focus that he would let nothing get in the way of his run toward the king. Hebrews 12, 1-11 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. With endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to the King, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking to Jesus and considering Him who helps us run our race of faith. We have looked at um, Him as our Father, uh, as God who calls us His own, as a Father calls His children close and welcomes and embraces and creates family and a place of intimacy and connection and nurture and protection. He is Abba, Father. Father we have looked at God, our coach, one who prepares us, who calls us into a close huddle and with the tone of a humble and gentle nurturing coach, he prepares us for the task at hand. He prepares us for every situation in life. He prepares us for the capacity and the ability to follow Jesus in the way he wants us to. Not only that, he is a brilliant coach at asking questions that cause us to be reflective of what is happening within our hearts for the purpose of our transformation. And as coach, he also comes alongside and encourages us. You know, the work of the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, parakletos, the one who is called alongside. Every step of the way, we are shoulder to shoulder with Holy Spirit as he empowers us and coaches us on a daily, minute by minute, every step of the way basis. And today we look at Abba, Father, God, our King. And our hope for this series is that we would encounter the love of God as Father, Coach, and King. That we could, like Achimaz, and like the call in Hebrews twelve, to let us run unhindered, looking to Jesus. And so, let me pray as we get into the Word this morning. Father, we thank you that you are right here among us, that is the promise of your scripture and that is the testifying of your Holy Spirit, that you are here. And Father, I pray that this morning we would be like clay in the potter's hand. Father, that we would bring the incompleteness of our lives and be found on the potter's wheel, that in these moments of hearing your word and being together and worshipping your name, Father, that... Your gentle hands would be at work shaping us into the vessels that you want us to be. Father, vessels that will carry your presence and your glory and your wonder and your majesty into the world. Father, we recognize that sometimes our vessels get holes in them and they crack and they leak. Father, I pray that there would be a repairing work of your spirit as we gather this morning. Father, you would mend these broken vessels, that you would shape us by your word into the people that you are shaping us into. And Father, that we would be okay not being in control. Father, that we would be just content to spin on your wheel as you shape us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, kings are the most mentioned group in the entire Bible. The title priest occurs around 500 times, the word prophet about 300 times, there is an astounding 2,700 uses of the Hebrew word Melech and around 125 uses of the Greek word Basileus, both of which are translated king, lord, captain, ruler, prince, chief. King. It is this vision of God that David penned, Psalm 47, verse 6 to 8. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, Malek. Sing praises for God is the king of all of the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The confession from days of old is that Yahweh, the ancient of days, Jehovah, the God of all creation of heaven and earth, is in fact the king. In the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, there is strong symbolism that makes it um, inescapably clear that Israel, in fact, was to see God, the one God, as their king. And I'm only going to go into one of them. There's a few. And this is the one, the Old Covenant, the law that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and how it was given. So scholars have observed that the covenant at Mount Sinai bears close resemblance to what is known as an ancient Near Eastern, and this is an interesting word, I hadn't heard it before, suzerain vassal Treaty. In short, a suzerain-vasal treaty is when a lesser king, known as a vasal, made peace with a greater king in the region, known as the suzerain. And the vasal swore allegiance to the suzerain and offered tribute. You know, would do certain things. You know, vasal would serve the suzerain and offer um, money and resources and their allegiance, and the suzerain, literally, which means the king of kings, swore protection if the vassal were attacked, among other benefits determined by the treaty that they entered into. This is how a suzerain-vasel treaty works. There are four parts. You have to bear with me here. The first one is this, is the identification of the suzerain by his name and titles, that's the first part of a suzerain vassal treaty. The second part is a historical survey of the suzerain's dealings with the vassal, So kind of a, um, a look back over history at what this suzerain has done already. A bit of a track record. Let's look back and see what had happened. The third section of a treaty like this is to list the stipulations. What the vasal is required to do is spelled out in principle and detail. Cool, in light of who the suzerain is and the suzerain's track record, um, here are now the stipulations of this treaty. Here's what you need to do. And the last section of these treaties contains the blessings and curses of the suzerain. If the stipulations are met by the vassal, he will receive the suzerain's blessings, which are listed. If the vasil fails to meet the stipulations, he will receive the suzerain's curses, which are also listed in the treaty. And you might be thinking, that's pretty old school and formal. I'm glad we don't have suzerain vasel treaties anymore. You know, that would be a really difficult thing to try and unpick. However, it's come to my attention that I use the suzerain vasel treaty on the regular. Especially at meal times in our house. Usually when there is complaining about the food and it goes a little bit like this. Kids... I am your father, and without me, you would not exist, let alone have a roof over your heads or this hot meal before your faces. Therefore, this is how things are going to work around here. You're going to take the bins out when asked. You are going to empty the dishwasher of your own accord. You will make your beds tidy up after yourselves, keep noise to a minimum at all times. If you do these things, you will get fed tomorrow. If you don't, watch out. There will be no surfing, no screen time, no dessert, and forget the play date on the weekend. That is a suzerain-vasal treaty. Now come with me as we take a quick look at Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments and how these four aspects of a suzerain treaty are included. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. That is point number one of a suzerain treaty. Identification of the king of kings by their name. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the historical survey to prove the suzerain's place as the king of kings over the lesser. And then verse chapter 20, verse 3 to 17, and I'm not going to go through, is the list of stipulations. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and, lo- and do not murder and do not steal, and love your mother and father. And the Ten Commandments are the stipulations by which the suzerain deals with the vassal in this case. And intertwined in all of this are the curses and the blessings. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. In the cultural context of the time, the giving of the Ten Commandments and how they were given are symbolic that God is, in fact, the King of Israel. He is a king like no other. He is the one who is in charge and he ought to be seen and worshipped and obeyed as such. And in gracious return, he would lead them and he would guide them and he would protect them. From the very beginning, God was to be seen and to be worshipped and to be obeyed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we track Israel's history through the Old Testament, we can observe, though, that the relationship between God and his people ebbed and flowed like the tide. There were times of rich blessing as the people of God served and worshipped him as he wanted them to, and as they lived out their missional calling to be a blessing to all of the other nations around them, while at other times Israel rejected God as their king, and they created for themselves other gods. A giant, big golden calf, for example. They created idols. They bowed to other entities other than their one true king. And this came to a head during Samuel's term as judge when Israel decided that they wanted to be like other nations around them and have a human king. You know, they failed to remember that God was calling them to be a different people operating under a different way, but yet they decided that they weren't happy with that anymore, that they thought that they were better off being like everybody else. And so they go to Samuel and they ask for a king. And this was likely for two reasons. One, to protect them militarily. They probably felt pretty fearful and exposed against, against the, the might of military firepower that other nations around them would have had. And so, from a place of fear, they've come to Samuel and said, can we have a king, please? The second is this, that there would be a clear succession plan for who would lead them into the future. Either way, this was a declaration that their trust was no longer in God as their king, despite the fact that that God, in fact, had an incredible record, track record, of being a wonderful, forgiving, redeeming, rescuing king. I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt from making bricks under slavery, under Pharaoh's regime. I carried you out. I carried you through the waters, through the deserts. I led you by pillars of smoke and fire and I fed you in the desert with thing, bread on the ground and manna from heaven and water from rocks. I've done all of this stuff. Despite God's track record, the Israelites just decided, nah, we want another king. 1 Samuel 8 records, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. And there were judges in Beersheba. And so Samuel, he went and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel does. He goes to the Israelites and he explains, okay, if this is what you want, this is what you'll get. By the way, this is how this king that you're asking for will lead you. And he gave them all of the ways that they would be led. And they shrugged it off, fobbed it off. Yeah, whatever. Whatever, Samuel. We don't really care. Just give us the king. But nonetheless, Samuel, with God's provision and permission, gave them what they wanted. Now, I wonder where this breakdown of trust, moreover, the rejection of God as their king, came from. I mean, perhaps the question is a little bit more personal than that. I mean, if I'm honest, I can quite easily manage God as a father into my life he fits that box kind of neatly I can easily manage God as a coach figure in my life as he prepares me and transforms me and he comes alongside and encourages me but King you know God who is my heavenly dad who, who knows me closely who raises me in his ways, and when he nurtures me when I'm broken and sees me through when all I want to do is quit. I've got plenty of room for God, my father, in my life. And God, who is my coach, who calls me and chooses me, who graces me with gifts and certain talents, and who prepares me and transforms me and encourages me. I mean, bring that on, you know, coach, coach God, you know. Be with me every day and show me your ways. God as king? I've got to breathe a little bit deeper. God as king? A call to unadulterated faithfulness? A call to radical obedience? A call to a, a covenant commitment that I enter into with him? A commitment to his reign and rule over my reign and rule i mean give me a sec god as father yeah god as coach bring it on god as king i mean what gets in the way of me trusting god as king and this is my curious question this morning in fact this is as far as the message on god as king got this week Perhaps God has some things he wants to heal and restore in us that has got in the way of us fully surrendering to God as our king. Now, as I reflected on the Israelites, I began to find myself in their story. And there was a couple of pinches in here for me. Some of it hurt a little bit. And I want to speak on three things that get in the way of trusting the kingship of God. Perhaps a little bit off topic in terms of how does God help, as king, help us run. Uh, I just want to tackle it from this angle. Three things that get in the way of us trusting the kingship of God. First one Israel had a proclivity toward comparison, and so can I it would appear that Israel's desire for a human king came from looking for what they didn't have and failed to see what they do have. They looked around at the neighbouring nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Vegemites, the red traffic lights. They looked at the kings of Zobar and they thought, if only we had a king like their God. Or only if our agricultural land was as rich as there was, if only our farms were as productive as they, if only our army was as strong and as efficient and was as bolstered as the others, if only our holidays were like their holidays and Only if our Instagram feeds look like their Instagram feeds. You know, I think Roosevelt was right in saying that comparison is the thief of joy, but I think it's actually worse than that. Comparison is the the thief of seeing the everyday blessing of God. And when we are robbed of that, we're robbed of all. Left only to succumb to the temptations of misplaced desire. But in playing the comparison game, going, "Oh yeah, maybe our, our God's maybe not as good as the one that these people are worshiping." or "God, I wish that you were more like this or more like that, and a little bit less like that, and a little bit less like this," and we enter into this comparison. We are robbed of seeing the everyday blessing of God. And in my experience, trying to fill that hole with other things than the one true king. It's like a small stone rattling around in a big space. It just doesn't fill it. It just doesn't do anything except echo and bounce and annoy everybody else. Judges 2, 11 to 13 says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served Baal's. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. In comparing their situation to others, they lost sight of the activity of God. So they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Theologian Michael Rhodes comments, when we read about the Israelites worshipping the god Baal, we tend to think of them developing a preference for wooden idol images. But the primary attraction to Baal wasn't a pretty statue, it was an economic promise. For the nations around Israel, Baal was the rider of the clouds. As he was known, the rider of the clouds, who brought the rains and blessed the earth. When Baal showed up, the heavens rained oil and the rivers ran with honey. Mothers gave birth to healthy children and even the dead could be raised. Little wonder then that when King Ahab chose to marry from Baal territory, the farmers in Israel built a house for this new God and welcomed him to the neighbourhood. He goes on to say, of course most Israelites probably didn't totally reject Yahweh, the God of Israel. They likely continued to go to church, paying their tithes and saying a prayer or two now and again, especially on holidays. They just added Baal worship to their insurance policy. After all, if you're a farmer, it's only practical to invest in getting the rider of the clouds to like you. Yahweh would have none of it. He sent his prophet Elijah to tell Israel to stop limping between two different opinions. Through Elijah, God declared that Baal couldn't deliver the goods and his people couldn't have it both ways. And how easy are we, I, distracted by the bling and the razzle-dazzle of what the others have got? by what's in the next paddock by what's over the fence what's over the road what's in the driveway next door you know i wonder what little g gods we have built a home for in our own lives just to hedge the bets you know it's like kino a few bucks on heads and a few bucks on tails just in case one of them doesn't come through Now, placing our hope in what we don't have will invariably lead us to missing what and who we do have. God, the one true king, has promised himself to us and the fullness of his kingdom, and he has no equal and he has no rival. So don't hedge your bets, church. Go all in on Jesus, the one true king. Israel had a proclivity toward comparison. And so can I. Second way that, or well, second thing that got in the way of Israel trusting God was they allowed fear to rule their story. And again, so can I. You know, did they reject God as their king and want a king like everyone else because they were afraid of the uncertainty of who would provide for them? Uh, Did they want another king because they were afraid of the vulnerability of being or feeling exposed or unprotected? Uh, Were were Israel rejecting God as king and wanting their own little king because they were fearful of what other nations thought of their seemingly kingless nation? Were they afraid of what had had been of what had been promised to them may not come to pass? Were they afraid of the power of their rivals? In Numbers 13, God asks Moses to send out spies to survey the land that he was giving them, the promised land. And Moses obeys. He sends out spies to go and check it out. But the Israelites use this reconnaissance mission as a chance to disobey God. They ask Moses to send out the spies again so they can stall the military action that God commanded. When the spies return with a favourable report, saying, yeah, it's all good, coast is clear, guys. There's no boogie monsters, there's no trolls under the bridges. It is a straight-on entry, all the way in, baby. We are three sheets to the wind into the promised land. When they came back with a favourable report, the Israelites still refused to go oh the people are stronger and taller than we oh but moses the cities they're enormous their walls they're so fortified they go from earth all the way up to heaven you wouldn't believe it walls bigger than you've ever seen oh moses we can't do it oh please no it's just too hard They said, even our hearts melt. Woe is me. Even though Moses assures the people that God will fight for them just as he did in Egypt, they do not trust God to fulfill his promises. Fear is often found in excuses. And if I'm completely... I'm letting you into my quiet time with the Lord this morning in preparation. And this this is me... This is me working through this this morning. So welcome in. It's a little bit scary and a little bit vulnerable, but hey, let's have at it, hey? We've only got one shot at this. I'm learning to listen to the excuses that I make and probe them for the fear that they are hiding. Now, if we think about the excuses that we make for just about anything, I wonder what fear they reveal within us. Do my excuses around giving reveal a fear that God won't provide financially for my family? Do my excuses for not praying reveal a fear that God might not be as powerful as I would have hoped? Do my excuses for not saying yes reveal a fear that my comfort may be challenged? Do my excuses for needing to be in control reveal a fear that others may not be as good as me? Do my excuses for holding back reveal a fear that saying yes might cost me something? Do my excuses for staying distant reveal a fear that I'll be alone anyway? Do my excuses for staying quiet reveal a fear that I've got nothing worth to add here anymore? Do my excuses for destructive behavior reveal a fear that my fear itself will be noticed? I mean, do not fear because you're not alone. We all make excuses. I make heaps of them. And you just heard pretty well the whole rap sheet of them. You know, I make excuses around what I do with my money. I make ex- excuses around not praying. I make excuses for not saying yes to God. I make excuses for needing to be in control. I make excuses for holding back and staying distant and staying quiet and in doing destructive things to myself. I make excuses for those things. But what is the fear that is revealed within? See, fear and doubt are raucous cousins that when they get together, wreak havoc in the heart. They limit our willingness to trust God as our king. And so often I believe we can miss the wonder of freedom in Christ in so many ways when our excuses and fear dominate the story of our lives. So I welcome you to bring your fears to the Lord that he may heal them. And this is a safe place to do that. We're not about to do that in an open forum, but this is a safe place for you to be in relationship with other people, to be in proximity with the Lord as we gather and as we worship and as we hear his word, as we gather midweek in homes and wherever we may gather, this is a safe place to bring your fears to the Lord, that he may heal them and perhaps the excuses will be the next thing to go. Thirdly, what got in the way of the Israelites fully trusting in God as their king? it would seem that it was their forgetfulness. They forgot his promises and his work among them. To which again I say, so can I. I preached on this a little while ago when we're doing our milestone series on why do we take communion. Deuteronomy 8.11 says this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and you are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. Do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manner that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God is like a broken record in Deuteronomy remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. You shall remember that you're a slave in the land of Egypt. You shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh. You shall remember all the ways which your Lord God has led you in the wilderness. You shall remember, and not to forget, remember what the Lord did. Remember this, remember the former things of long past. I mean, this idea and this call to remembrance is not just a good idea, it is an institution that God established to remind us that it is nothing of our own doing. Not our smarts, not our wealth, not our success, not our privilege, not our colour, not our income, not our tenacity or our grit or our wherewithal or the postcode that we live in that makes us right and acceptable before him. Only him, only King Jesus at work in his radical grace that in spite of our forgetfulness, in spite of our comparison, in spite of our excuses and our fears would still choose us. This morning I was preparing upstairs in the office and Mia and Lucy Miko uh, walked into the office And Lucy's eyes bulged as she saw the wall of photos in our office um, that we've been collating from what God has been doing in this church community throughout uh, the year. I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times. In fact, the idea is that at one point it's going to come down later in the year and we'll have a big thing where everyone can see it because it's just a little bit selfish, really, that it's just in our office and no one else gets to see it. So anyway, that's a side note. But the wall is it's growing. We have a calendar that goes the entire way around our office. And with every month, there is you know, a dozen, 15 or 20 photos of that month of everything that has been happening. Well, not everything, but a lot of things. Normally, where Chrissy's been to take photos, <laughs> a lot of selfies. Anyway, it's all good. Um, we've got photos tracking the entire year. And Lucy, she ogled them, wide-eyed, walked in, just kind of like, whoa just stared and scanned at all of these photos until her eyes rested on one of them. And it was her and Teddy eating pancakes on Pancake Tuesday. And as she stood there and just stared at the photo, said, hey, Lucy, do you remember that? And she just nodded her head. I mean, perhaps this is what the Lord wants for us to take a moment and to ogle the gallery of his goodness, to wonder over the works of his hand, to recall his faithfulness across the seasons and to be reminded of all that he has done for us and in us. Let us never forget what the Lord has done be it from the very beginning of the redemptive story of Scripture, where we are found in that story of being saved and redeemed out of slavery to sin. That we have been brought into a place of freedom through the blood of Christ. That we have been called now to be new creations and live in such a way that we would recognize that Christ is the King. That it wasn't just His birth and His death that made Him such, but His entire life. That every miracle, every interaction, every conversation, every moment, every prayer, every story, every parable was all declaring that Jesus is the King of all and we ought to remember all of his ways. The antidote to forgetfulness is remembrance. That's why they pay me the big bucks, to come up with lines like that. The antidote to forgetfulness is remembrance, duh. A worship is an act of remembrance. As I said, we could have sung that song as we just remember line after line and verse after verse and chorus after chorus and bridge after bridge and song after song, remembering all that God has done. Communion is an act of remembrance. Uh, Giving is an act of remembrance. Storytelling among the community and from the platform is an act of remembrance. Creating art is an act of remembrance. Writing song is an act of remembrance. Creating things of beauty is an act of remembrance. So sing, church, break bread, give, tell stories of his goodness and create beautiful things that speak of his wonder because he wants us to remember. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember this and stand firm. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I mean, this is the reverberation of God's call throughout humanity, throughout all of history, as we have turned our backs and hardened our hearts and looked for other gods and chased down avenues that led to dead ends. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. David again in Psalm 143, verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I'll invite the band to come back up. I and mean, God has and is and he always will be king. You know, from creation to his coming as a baby, You know, from being a baby into his life and into his death and his resurrection, he is king. Into these days of the spirit where you and I live until the day he comes again, he is king. And from the day he comes again for all eternity, he is king. He is the one who has rescued and redeemed us from the land of slavery to sin. He is the one who has delivered us from the power of darkness. He is the one who has led us into freedom and into hope and into peace. And so as gently as I can, both to myself and to all of us, may comparison and may fear and may forgetfulness never rob us of the wonder of King Jesus, love and mercy and grace.